Hello, we are back. Today's episode is sponsored, as always, by the lovely people at Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment wonders headquartered in Edinburgh. So thank you to them for making this all possible. So I'm excited to say that today we have another double act. I'm speaking to Peter Denby and Tom Hill, both directors and co-founders of Leeds-based Hyper Group. So Hyper are a data science consultancy who specialise on um, personalising your customer data strategy. Um, so we'll get into what that means on the show and how they came to be. So yeah, please welcome Pete and Tom to How AI Built This. Thank you, Pete and Tom, for joining us on the podcast, first of all. No problem. Good to be on. Yeah, I feel like um, Pete and you and I have talked about this for a while and then we finally managed to get some dates working, which is good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Took advantage of the uh, little bit of a breather uh, being at home to uh, to do that. So yeah, too. I've um, managed to not use any sort of diary management in these podcasts. So I've managed to put one in like I think every day this week, almost by accident, which is good because people are more available. But I need to remember that it takes a bit of work to actually do them. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's yeah. all good. So like we normally do, uh, we'll just jump kind of into education. Um, obviously, there's two of you guys on, so we'll kind of go through both and uh, and then the the kind of careers up till up till just now um but Pete Sam of you I think you did a kind of bachelor's in media production right yeah yeah so I got to where I am now in a, a slightly circuitous way um <laughs> I, I remember um choosing my degree based on what I was interested in at the time and uh, <laughs> at the time I had a deep interest in tv and film and journalism um, advertising and marketing as well. And um, I thought if I'm going to continue in education, then I want to do something that I'm, I'm really going to enjoy. And, you know, I fancied um, going into producing content in uh, one of those uh, kind of media. And um, so, yeah, so I selected a course that was very kind of practical. It was all about making TV programs, um, you know, making radio shows, doing journalism, that kind of thing. Nice. So I uh, spent three years doing that. It was, um, you know, it was enjoyable on some fronts, uh, although the, I think the course was a bit, uh, a little bit kind of loose. And I probably got to the end of that and thought I, I need something a bit more structured now and really kind of found my feet when I got into business roles after after that degree. Um, having said that, you know, kind of many years later, I found myself working at Sky, one of the biggest media companies uh, going. And so... <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it was justified in the end. Nice. Um, I know one of the reasons we always talk about it is because nobody's really managed yet to come up with exactly the same background as anyone else who's now working in data. And one of the things I liked about speaking to both of you guys is that neither of you are from like technical backgrounds. So it's nice to see the kind of other side of data and AI, not just the kind of people who are building the models or, or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, Tom, you did the bachelor's in management science, right? And then a master's after that. Uh, and operations research yeah exactly that so i mean yeah i am a bit technical although less so now so i'm a data scientist at heart um, oh nice yeah so i i'm a data scientist before that before they called it data science which was ah, management, or... management science was the bachelor's which in essence is data science okay. uh, and then operational research at lancaster university uh, which was a master's one year probably the best year of my life i hope my wife isn't listening to this um, <laughs> Just in the, it, 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 I enjoyed numbers. That was that was sort of where what, what floated my boat at the time. I found it easy. I found my flow in that, and then therefore I sort of found that educational route quite easy to do. So that's kind of how I got there. Uh, so very much a data science background. That said, uh, as I progress through my career, I've become 
less and less close to the doing uh, and more and more involved in the implementation sort of understanding problems uh, for clients and and knowing what needs to be done to fix it but not necessarily getting into that nitty-gritty of the analytics to do it yeah okay do you miss that side of it uh good question no (laughs) i I miss the lack of control (laughs) so i'd like (laughs) i I know what i want done and it doesn't always get done in the way that i want it done and i think that you'll probably get a little bit of ocd and control traits coming through in in a data scientist and a technical technically minded person but um do i miss the day-to-day doing uh, now i mean within our business we've got some very very good technical people who uh, who do that very very well and i enjoy working with clients and working with people to solve problems uh, and, and let those guys work out the details as to how that translates into a, an actual data solution yeah it's a really nice place for you to be though given that you do have the kind of technical background behind it and the ability to work with clients because that's maybe just from doing the podcast and, and working in this world for a while now you can see some people falling out or not falling out and um, tripping themselves up when it comes to like not understanding the business requirement or they don't understand the technical requirements, so it makes it really hard to marry the two up. Yeah, I think we talk about that within the business actually a lot, and there's a gap. There's that data translation, as we call it, and a gap between taking a brief as a data scientist and understanding the commercial need and how that will integrate and, and making that work for a business, uh, and then and then doing it, so doing the, uh, the modeling and the analytics that's going to deliver that. Um, it is difficult. And, and you don't get generally that, that skill set in one person. And I think yeah. you have to have a couple of people, uh, one who is very analytically minded, but then there's a bridge, uh, we think, and I, I try to be that bridge. <laughs> you know, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, after uni then, so we'll jump on to, to your career, Tom. Um, you, did, you obviously do have that technical background, and then you started, I think, in Littlewoods as a kind of data analyst, and then that kind of, I don't know if this was by design or not, but that kind of spiraled uh, a career in retail essentially so working at different retail companies and working your way up from initially data analyst to kind of director vp level at places like asda and and kx uh, systems so i suppose tell us a little bit about that journey around kind of retail i mean for people that aren't listening i suppose supermarkets might be one of those first industries where they really did just collect like vast amounts of data on customers right so it kind of makes sense for someone to be analytically minded in that world yeah, agreed. Um, so we'll start, we'll start with Littlewoods because I think that's a real good business to understand. Shop directors, everyone will know it now. Uh, yeah. very, the very brand is there, most well-known. Um, but when I joined, there were Littlewoods and they knew customer data pretty much, I think, before any retailer knew it. So hundreds of years ago, when the model was created and John Moore's created Littlewoods, he, he worked with basically people going around to other people's houses um, and, and selling to them. But what he also did was, and and, and it was a, it was a, he tried to do a good thing. It was for people that couldn't afford to buy clothes outright, and so he spread the payment for them. So yeah. we're talking about credit, and we're talking about um, that sort of affiliate selling model. And when, and when he did that, it, it basically created data, and he started to look at that and said, "Well, I can see these people are selling loads of these types of products to their friends, and I can see these people are selling these types of products to their friends. Wait a minute, these two pe- these two groups of people are different." Why don't we start selling to them differently? And, and all of the techniques that you pretty much see in retail now grew up um, over 100 years within, within Littlewoods. So when I joined 20, 20 odd years ago, they were already at the forefront of sort of that customer analytics piece and using customer data to optimize marketing decisions, which is where I sat 
Uh, so I started building models to as to who which customers should receive catalogs. Catalogs were quite expensive at the time, so five pound a go. You need to make sure that people are going to order if they get them. And that was it. So it's a sort of simple regression modern models to predict response to that. And it just sort of progressed. My career just progressed really through to um, sort of senior analyst, managing a team of analysts. And then I took a leap agency side. So my, my second job was at a, it's actually a marketing agency in Manchester, BJL. Uh, and, that, and that was kind of good for me because it's put me on the other side, sort of helped me see that what clients were coming to us with data problems and we were solving those problems for them. And it got me much more into the, the problem solving element to it which was interesting. And then um, Asda were one of our clients and um, Asda came to me and you say that supermarkets had a lot of data. So when I started working with Asda, they had no customer data. So yeah. So Asda's premise is they're an everyday sort of low price retailer and they do that by keeping their operating costs at a minimum. So putting a loyalty scheme in, in introduced cost to the business. So they can't have the lowest prices. Um, So they're like, we don't go there. But what they did create was a home shopping proposition. So delivering uh, groceries to people's stores, which during COVID, everyone's suddenly very aware of and, and, and jumping onto. But that created customer data. Um, and, and so they, they came to us at BJL and said, how, how, what do we do with this customer data? We've got a database now. What do we do with it? And, um, and I came in. And were, so this is what they did with it. When sales were down, they sent a free delivery to everybody on the database. And when sales weren't down, they didn't send a free delivery to everybody on the database. Nice <laughs> and sophisticated. Yeah, I can assure you they've come a long way since then. Um, but yeah, so that's where it started. So it was really enjoyable to kind of go in there, do a little bit uh, agency side. And then I joined Asda. Um, and I had a really enjoyable journey uh, through Asda. But what happened during my time there is I kind of was responsible for data strategy uh, and then a little bit. Um, around insights or a broader insight role so I started to get a little bit de-skilled and then sort of general manager roles but all I always had a passion to use data within any role that was in so I ended up in pricing and promotions Uh, I was responsible for that within the business but I was still driving the data agenda within that so we were working with Walmart Labs out in the states to try and get sort of smart pricing algorithms that they were using to do a lot of the GM so general merchandise uh, proposition in, in in Walmart, so TVs and things like that, but get it into food, and ideally a, f- a food store operation. Uh, so we had lots of fun creating the algorithms to do that. The main challenge to implementing that, because they're not quite there in, in the tech yet, was the operating costs of changing a price on a shelf, because a person has to do that still, but yeah. we're moving towards electronic SEL, and I think that type of model will become more prevalent. So. I sort of, I'll, I'll leave it there for now because we'll talk a little bit more about the journey through KX and, and into where we are now, as I guess we'd discuss with Pete as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, that was really good. I, I suppose one last question on your experience, though. Um, do you think it's quite important that you work kind of agency and in-house at some point in your career when you do work in that kind of like marketing retail space, just so you understand both? Massively. I think people that are very, very, very agency focused, sometimes struggle with the implementation of of what they're delivering. So it's great to provide a recommendation, but actually getting that to happen client side is hard, really hard. And you have to manage multiple stakeholders, politics galore. Um, (laughs) It's just people and systems, navigating IT, all these things. And sort of being able to understand how hard it is that you don't just give somebody a solution and you go, that's it, cheers, goodbye. It's helping them 
bring that to life, actually integrate and make a difference in a business probably came from that sort of agency and client mix. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. Um, yeah, I, I think I agree as well. And, and the people I spoke to, they, they tend to agree. It's not like one's better than the other, but you just need to understand both. Cool. Um, Pete, you come from more of a kind of business development background, right? Kind of like account management, business development, sales. But again, working for, I mean, you mentioned Sky already. I think it was Call Credit you worked for as well, right? Yeah. So, so I actually started off my first job out of uni. Um, it should have been a recipe for disaster, really, but I, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, so I, I, um, my family's from um, a village just outside of Scunthorpe, a glamorous part of the world. And uh, I, I got a job um, working for an electronic component distributor, working on a business park somewhere outside of Scunthorpe. Um, I was probably one of the few people in the business with a um, university degree. It was very low paid as well. And everything um, kind of pointed towards it being an absolute disaster. But it was my first taste of business. My, my um, family are all uh, academics. So, you know, the, the concept of business was alien to me, really, until I got my first job. Um, and I started working there and I absolutely loved it. Just the dynamics of business, you know, working with clients and, and developing some of those relationships. Um, we had a very charismatic uh, managing director at the time and uh, understanding the business strategy and the, the plan for going to market and you know how he went about selling uh, was fascinating you know it was um, really uh, interesting place to kind of cut my teeth for, for the first few years and so I enjoyed that I got to a point though where I wanted to move to a um, larger city I wanted to move into a job in marketing which had been a you know a, a kind of passion for um, a number of years a few of my uh, pals were working in Leeds so I started applying for jobs in Leeds. So I got a job with a company which at the time was called EuroDirect uh, Database Marketing. They were all about using data and analytics to help clients understand customers and to help them improve customer acquisition, retention and growth. So this is in the early 2000s. So this is the type of thing that companies are only really kind of coming to terms with now. We're doing that a long, long time ago. So EuroDirect, uh, when I joined, they had recently set up Call Credit, which was a credit reference agency that was established to rival Experian and, and Equifax. Um, at the time I joined, I think um, EuroDirect were turning over about 10 million quid. They, they eventually sold to, uh, well, they became Call Credit, and then they sold to TransUnion for about a billion quid uh, in the summer of 2018. So yeah. phenomenal growth. So I saw a good deal of that growth during the 10 years that I was there. Um, so my role was um, yeah, primarily focused on kind of account management and development, progressing up through the, through the ranks doing that. But learned a load of stuff about you know um highly professional account management understanding clients you know being a partner to those clients and 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 then um kind of growing business uh, uh with them um but yeah the, the uh, in terms of what we were delivering to those clients it was all about using data and, and analytics which has been a, a a constant um in my career since then so 10 10 years with what became core credit and then um ended up working for um sky and and i think the you know the, the power of relationships really so I, I ended up getting this opportunity with sky via someone that i met on a mutual friends uh, stag do so you know <laughs> i think there's a big thing about always trying to get on with people so i got this opportunity and, and entered into sky which is an incredible company actually um predominantly working in london and it, and it was in in the area it was kind of a nascent area um, that's developed and, and got quite high profile now. But it was all about using, understanding people's TV viewing behavior and using that behavior to work out what content to create 
what content to buy and how much to pay for it. So for example, you know, how much to pay for the Premier League rights. And then also using that same kind of insight to drive targeted TV advertising, which you, you're really seeing the rise of at the moment. Yeah, amazing place to work. You know, really, really bright people, learned loads of stuff. Uh, and then um, ended up um, needing to be further back north again rather than working in, in London all week uh, for family reasons. Came back, spent another year at uh, Call Credit and then, you know, fairly uh, early on in that in that that year back, I um, realised that you know I actually wanted to start a business with some um, like-minded friends, and yeah, that's that's what we we decided to do at that point. Nice. No, I mean it sounds like you've kind of been involved in analytics type roles just throughout your career. Again, I don't know if it was by design or not, but just it seems like it's just fallen that way, and you, you've used those skills as you went on. So it kind of makes sense to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, definitely around that kind of topic. And, you know, when I started out at what became Core Credit in the early 2000s, this whole concept of big data and data science and AI was, you know, it was miles off. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a cool job then. It was just, you know, it was a job that kind of got me close to marketing, you know, by by luck, really. It, uh, over the past few years, it's become one of the most important and um, kind of high profile uh, industries uh, globally. So we're, you know, we've we've ended up being in the right place. But, you know, it was probably more by uh, fortune than than design when we started out no i like it. i like the fact that the two or well, at least two of the founders of hyper both got into data before it was cool that's a good story um you know just jumping <laughs> on the bandwagon yeah um, well, all of us that two um other founders uh damon and adam have pretty similar stories nice yeah i don't know whether i don't know whether to respond to that as well by saying data has always been cool <laughs> or data has never been cool <laughs> i'm not sure which is the right one yeah i don't know what one's right it depends who it depends what marketing person you're listening to and then so you guys both worked at kx right was this just before the business was set up or was this part of it yeah so so what happened is um we uh, i was back at um call credit for a year and you know speaking to the guys I think we all uh, came to a decision at a similar time that we wanted to set up a business. And uh, we used to have these chats when we we're out uh, drinking on a Friday night, in, um, particularly in Bundabust, which is a, one of the craft beer places in Leeds. And uh, we got chatting about this over you know, a few Fridays and it progressed towards the point where we think actually there could be something in this. So from there, we started spending um, some weekends uh, together working up a business plan. And then we, we set up um, a, a limited company. We were at the point where we were close to handing in our notice with the businesses we were working for and, and, and going for it on our own. Again, the power of networks. We got talking to a kind of a contact of a contact of a contact from uh, a, a business called First Derivatives, which is the PLC, and they have a software brand called KX. And um, they were looking to expand beyond their core market, which is capital markets. So they, they provide software that powers high frequency stock trading and various other things. And they wanted to get into retail as, as one of their new markets. So they got talking to us. They um, saw that we were looking to create a startup and they um, came to us with a proposition, which was to basically come and set up a new practice for them. So it'd be somewhere between have it working for a standard kind of corporate standard kind of corporate role and having your own startup um so it's probably a, a lower risk approach for us to to becoming a startup yeah so we 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 so we kind of operated our own business but within their um corporate structure and, and we set up this retail practice so we built some solutions on top of their technology technology for uh, processing and analyzing data at extreme speed 
and um you know we spent two and a half years uh, doing that setting up the practice building the prop- propositions um developing a pipeline um until we got to the point where we you know we, we decided actually you know to be truly independent and to be able to really make our own decisions we'd, we'd need to strike out on our own um, at which point we we decided to uh, become hyper nice and so did you guys um so tom did you and pete know each other before the kx stuff yeah yeah, I mean, we all knew each other. I was a bit late to the uh, to the party with these guys, actually. Some, some of the conversations had already happened, and I think they thought I was quite happy in my role at ASDA and wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be interested in, in, in sort of joining in. But uh, like the others, I'd become a little bit tired of corporate life. Main thing around navigating politics. I like to get things done. I like yeah. to make a difference, get things done, and I love a positive environment. Uh, everyone pulling in the same direction. And for an organisation, I mean, Asda's brilliant, uh, but for an organisation so big, uh, it requires a lot of uh, stakeholder management and a lot of politics to manage. And I was kind of getting weary of that uh, element of corporate life. And these guys actually came to me and said, look, we're, we're, we're doing this. So Damon and Adam, uh, the other two partners in the business, um, I'd worked with a lot actually delivering data solutions at Asda. Uh, they worked for Call Credit at the time, but... They'd spent a lot of time as working in Asda and I'd work with them and, and I'd realised they were brilliant data scientists, like genuine data scientists. So I, I knew their skill set and, and Pete, I mainly knew from the pub. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, and yeah, so an, another contact. So, but we, all, we always got on and that's one of the most important things when you start in a business is, is can you get on with somebody enough to tell them when you disagree with what they're saying uh, and have that positive wanting to do things in the right way together and i think between us we, we knew each other well enough uh, through both work and social circles that we, we sort of knew we could get on together and make that work yeah no i think that's probably that's not something i've written down but when you're talking about the fact that there was more than one person setting up so one of the chats i had i can't remember who it was but they said kind of starting with someone else was quite important they thought because doing it by yourself might be too much of a stretch i suppose the flip side is true as well if you're doing it with four people then yeah you really need to make sure that you get on but you made an interesting point there that you get on both like professionally and like socially because i'm sure there's loads of people that have set up a business with their best mate but never worked with them before and realized they're actually a bit of a dick um or or (laughs) something like that Um, so it's probably quite good that you guys all knew each other really well but in like in both capacities I i think another important thing is um having a combination of skill sets so i think if you just set up on your own there's very very few people um who excel at everything you need to excel at to make a successful business i think we've got a good combination of you know kind of uh, commercial acumen kind of business development um stuff through to you know very technical data science uh, type skills you just don't get those in in, in one person you know it's like it just doesn't happen so i think if you've got multiple people as long as you can you know get on with each other and you can have honest conversations uh then having that that, that broader range of skill sets stands you in good stead yeah no i think so too one of the questions i was going to say to you guys actually having something that was totally yours kind of especially given that you'd set up that um kind of new practice for kx so having something that was all yours was it quite weird making all the decisions or because there was kind of four of you with certain skills was it quite easy just to split things up into like what you guys were best at to set the business up yeah um i I mean i think it's great from from my perspective i think it's great being able to make our own decisions you know i think that's what we were really desperate to to do 
even having a kind of startup within a corporate business, ultimately you're, uh, ans- you have to answer to the, the corporate that um, you, you're working for. So you're never going to have full autonomy over decision making, um, which is really why we want, you know, one of the big reasons we wanted to have a startup in the first place. So I think when we'd come out of it and, um, you know, set up as hyper, uh, having that um, autonomy and really kind of living or dying by our own decisions has been energizing. And I think it has the split of responsibilities has fallen uh, quite nicely. So we, th- there's not a huge amount of crossover. Tom draws out this um, uh, kind of Venn diagram of, uh, you know, um, who's responsible for what. We've got, you know, obviously got pockets where we, we cross over. Um, but in the main, we've we've got very distinct kind of skill sets and therefore responsibilities. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's worked out pretty well. I suppose dialing back a little bit then onto Hyper. So I think it's pretty much been a year of like the Hyper brand, right? When the four of you guys set it up. So uh, I don't know, what, what was the original business plan when you guys were meeting in the pub and chatting about it and kind of you thought you spotted something that could become a business? And I suppose now that we're a little bit into it, has it changed a whole lot? Yeah, so when we set our original business up before we joined KX, we um, we were going to be a, a fairly broad brush data science consultancy uh, and I think there's merit in that I think there's still uh, lots of opportunity for you know data science consultancies because uh, most businesses you know really struggle with that having that true data science uh, capability and particularly people who can commercialize data science who can who can talk about it who can take business problems who can apply data science to to, to, to solving them uh, so that's what we we're going to do originally when we then became hyper, we wanted to be more focused. I think the probably two and a half years or so that we were with KX, we, we learned a lot during that time. And we worked out that to if we were going to be successful, we probably needed to focus on a bit more of a niche. So the, the kind of niche that we spotted was that our t- um, primary market is, is retail. And most retailers make decisions based on things like gut feel you know what sold last year and of course that's problematic at the moment with um you know with covid19 that's going to change the landscape you know maybe make decisions based on space they've got in the warehouse or you know in the catalog or structure of the website but don't necessarily take customers into account so what that means is that the customer um, doesn't always get the experience that they crave. And because they don't get at that experience, then they'll be promiscuous. So they won't spend as much money with that retailer as they could do. So the niche that we spotted was to use data and um, analytics to deliver customer-led or to enable customer-led decisions for retailers, typically around you know what the right product range would be, how to price products, um, uh, the supply chain, and delivering personalized marketing. And if you kind of package those all together, that, that enables the retailer to deliver a, a much more compelling and personalized experience to a customer. Customers stay longer, they spend more money, uh, the retailer increases revenue and profit, which is what they're really about. So that's the that's the area that we, we chose to focus on. And, you know, we've kind of been vindicated in that approach um, from a successful uh, first 12 months. Nice. And I think, Tom, obviously you would have a big kind of part to play, even if it was just insider knowledge on kind of how retail companies just approach data. Like what you said, when you joined us, they had none. So just like knowing the ins and outs of that, I take it that's been quite helpful. Yeah. So I'll give you the same story that Pete's just given you, but from the analytical point of view. So 
during, during KX, and, and KX is a big, fast data platform, and their USP really, so synonymous in capital markets uh, and algorithmic trading, was very much around speed. So it does it faster, and therefore in that market, it's really, really important. The challenge that we found in retail is they, they're not quite there yet in terms of needing the speed. Uh, so real-time decisioning will come. I think with IoT and connected supply chain, that will come. But it's not quite there yet. But what we did find during the KX uh, time was every time somebody came to us with a problem we were solving it with a very similar solution and i'll use an ill-fated example to, to take you through that so we, we got talking to thomas cook during our relationship there and, and they came to us with a challenge which is we need to improve margin which won't surprise anybody obviously listening to this knowing the stories that have uh, come out and happened since then yeah. um, so th- but naturally what they did engaging data people is to say can you build as a pricing engine just to improve our margin. Um, I said, of course we can. Um, but the first question we asked is, well, how do you do it today? And what, and what they had was pricing people, yield analysts that were responsible for each of the destinations. Somebody looked after Turkey, somebody looked after Spain, so on and so forth. But using Affinity Analytics, what we found is we could group hotels together across regions um, and, and, it, and based around customer needs and customer decisions. And the way in which a customer picks a hotel on a holiday, certainly in the late market, where they were really, really losing margin and, and giving away a lot of margin uh, and last-minute bookings, you're, you're less fussy about certain elements. And when you can put hotels together in that way, the group that we came up with was a group of hotels. Some are three-star, some are four-star. Uh, some had a pool, some didn't. Some were near a beach, some weren't. Uh, and, and, and we looked at this and we said, we're not sure about these customer needs because that group of hotels doesn't make any sense to us. So we explored the attributes, and attributes are a really important concept. So a pool is an attribute um, and, and what else they had. And so we went through it and, and they said that that's not near a beach. People will go, I want to be near a beach or I don't want to be near a beach. Carried on, carried on. And what, what we found for this group of uh, hotels was they all had a kids club, a sort of specific type of kids club. And when we got into that, they said, yeah, they really love that kids club. People talk about it quite a lot. And I said, well, do you think that's a real defining point as to how people are choosing hotels? And I said, it could be, yes. And, and that really brought, brought out that actually we, we then built a pricing algorithm um, and we were working with them to deploy this. But unfortunately, that's when everything unfolded. So we were just too late in terms of really helping them with data solve that problem. Um, yeah. And it was really disappointing that we couldn't come in there. But the, the heart of it was Affinity Analytics, looking at customer needs and then looking at how demand transfers across different types of customer needs and hotels to do that pricing optimization. And that was just an example of people came to us for a pricing problem, but we still looked at it from a customer-centric perspective. Yeah. I want to know who books a hotel without a pool. That freaks me out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, some of the other things I'm okay with. Generally um, 18 to 24-year-olds who don't really care and just want to get abroad into into some... <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, I, never, I never thought about them, to be fair. No, that sounds good. And I like the fact, yeah, you could have stripped it back. I think that's maybe one of the really good things about you guys having that commercial acumen, like you mentioned earlier, because if it was just like a technical team going in, they might just build that pricing um, model for them. And maybe it would work to some degree. But the fact that you guys are happy to stand back and not just dive straight in with a technical solution like maybe it doesn't need to be maybe it doesn't need to be that maybe it needs to be something else so let's like stand back and talk about it first i think that probably stand you in good stead in comparison to a lot of people in the market because i'm sure they just want the work 
Yeah, we, we try and do that a lot. And I think, like I say, this is probably where the agency and client side stuff does help, which is how are we going to use this in the business? Who 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 is going to be making different decisions as a result of what we're putting in place? And who really needs to get on board with what we're landing? I, IT is critical for what we do. Um, and we deal, our stakeholders tend to be marketing operations um, and and people who are responsible for the decisions but the people who deploy that are IT. And if they're yeah. not on board from day one, uh, you can build a brilliant solution, but somebody won't deploy it for you um, because it's not in their preferred uh, software or in their environment or not in their environment, depending on what people's preferences are. Yeah, I know I'm not, this isn't even on my on my sheet, but are Hyper pretty much kind of technology agnostic? Like you guys are going to each solution kind of with a, a pretty much open mind as to what you might use. We, 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 we're dual on that. Uh, front so absolutely uh, we, we work with lots of clients and we are totally agnostic in terms of how we how we do that so in some with some clients we work in their environment we use their tools we build things in their firewall because um, that's how they want it um, and we're happy to as we're building things for them they they own the ip and they own the solutions that we deliver for them but then on, on the flip to that we also uh, have our product which Pete will probably talk a little bit more about but in terms of developing our product, that came out of the analytics solving the same different problems. Um, and, and what we found was a range problem in terms of what are the right products that we should be putting in our stores, on our website, you know, what's the sort order, what should that look like, how do I do dynamic search, supply. Uh, a lot of people don't use customer data in supply, and it's not customer-centric, and we, and we found solutions within that space. Uh, marketing, I think, is probably where this type of analytics is more mature, so a lot of the recommendation engines and sort of product bundling, all things like that, of where this analytics started. And, and then but pricing, again, I gave you the Thomas Cook example. Yeah. Uh, but it was combining pricing analytics and affinity analytics to come up with a better solution. Uh, so we, we've created a product anyway, and, and we've we productized the solution for that. It's Well, I'll let Pete just speak a little bit more about that in terms of how we deliver it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess it's... Uh, 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 fundamental part of you know how hyper's gone to market is the uh the kind of consulting type work uh where we're looking at client business problems and um using data and analytics to to address those problems uh and in um parallel with that developing a, a, a technology product so um you know the premise being the it's using the anal- type of analytics tom's uh, talked about affinity analytics attributes uh, uh need states that kind of thing um and um, we're just really conscious of um, of something that we said on the, the podcast earlier. Um, you know, clients are reticent to make massive technology changes. They invest huge amounts of money in their technology stack, and IT teams don't want to make massive changes. So we've been really uh, conscious to uh, develop a product that um, uh, is kind of simple, complex, simple. So taking really simple data inputs from a client, doing complex analytics and AI in the uh, in the middle, and that's our kind of proprietary element, uh, and then giving really simple outputs back to them. So a simple output might be a you know a, a recommendation engine or you know um, some pricing rules to implement or some uh, kind of metrics about 
product substitute substitutability or loyalty but it's it's making it really simple and really light touch that we're we're focused on um so that the the product can be accessible to as many uh, retailers as possible uh, but they're still benefiting from that really clever analytical piece that we do uh, in the middle so we're developing that uh, that product out we've we've got product um clients trialing it at the moment and we you know we kind of continue with the consultancy work in uh, in parallel with that nice okay that makes sense um and tom did you say earlier that supermarkets are working on like like digital uh shelf edge labels yeah that's definitely i think they'll come uh the, the main issue with that at the minute is cost prohibitive honestly comedy things like battery life and battery power and the cost to yeah power them was a barrier putting them in is obviously a little bit too expensive and buying them so kitting them up is was a barrier but i think that's starting to change in france i think carrefour certainly were one of the first to put a load in uh, they looked awful to be fair they're really sort of like gray gray with yeah matrix like game boys from yeah, yeah. years ago but yeah, they're improving and, and i think it won't be long before uh, digital screen signage scl um will be standard within retail it's, it's probably just the cost element that's stopping it right now and um, and, and even that's about at the tipping point so I used to work in Tesco, so I used to remember just hating the change in the labels. So it just took forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in terms of an operating cost, it's one of the biggest in the business. I'm not surprised. Uh, uh, receipts, yeah. pa- paper receipts, uh, and uh, and and obviously checkout colleagues <laughs> another. So you, there's, a, there's a reason you, you see, do you want a receipt or not, and uh, self checkout. I thought the do you want to receive it just because so many just got wasted and it was not bad for them. It was bad for the environment opposed to just costing them a lot of money. But that's a good point as well. It's win-win. So you'll have a couple of soapbox moments during this probably because I have lots of them. But uh, <laughs> this is one. And I, and I think that from a data perspective, when we speak to clients, they're only interested in two things. No matter what the problem is, they're only interested in two things. What you're delivering, what problem does it remove for a customer? Yeah. So let's talk about, let's stay with checkouts. Is self-checkout a better experience for a customer? Yes or no? If the answer is no, they're not going to use it. They just won't yeah. use it. So there's no benefit. But if the answer is yes, then they will. And this is why Amazon, Amazon Go, in terms of just walk out the store. Yeah. What, why? That is a win-win because if you make that cost effective, you're saving money because it costs a lot of money to get people through checkout. And the main frustration for people in, in a store is going through a checkout. So that is win-win. So what problems removed? And I've talked about the second one. What cost does it remove from my business? And if you can demonstrate one of those two things with a data solution, that then you're in. Anything else is pointless because it's not really solving a problem. It's a vanity project. Do you think it was going to get to, uh, I'm trying to think Asda specifically. So if you're in a massive Asda store, are people just going to pick up stuff, stick it in their bags and walk out and it'll all just be automated? Or is that just way too far-fetched? Uh, no, they are straight into my second soapbox. Uh, unlucky for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's really, from a consumer perspective, uh, it's, it's really, really simple. And, and what all they're looking for is ease. So does is it easier? The reason Amazon is so successful is because it's easier to shop with them than anybody else. In, and, and the second one, which is value. So ease, do you offer value for money? And Amazon tick that, those both in spades. And then the final one is speed. And speed used to be, can I get round a store? efficiently and effectively it's now can i get through a website and find the item of clothing that i want quickly and go through a a one-click checkout process 
Uh, mm. But speed has also become a, a sort of delivery race. How mm. quickly can I get that clothing item to your door? So like within an hour or whatever. And you can see Amazon focusing massively on those three things. Within a grocery supermarket, 100% uh, you will not need to go through a checkout at some point in that store. It's how quickly we get to that. Uh, I don't know. And my other, this is just a viewpoint, but I think it's a fairly educated one. I'm pretty confident that commodities, commodities are going to fundamentally change in grocery retail. You've already seen it in part of COVID. Things things that you don't, like non-fresh, uh, manufacturers are going to go direct to consumer as soon as it's easier for that to consume. Again, that consume, the reason people use grocery supermarkets at the minute is because I can get everything in one place. But the second a manufacturer can go direct to a consumer and they either don't need to be in or it just appears at their door or in their cupboard. I mean, probably wormholes are a fair way off, but it could be there. <laughs> um, but it will get it will get to that place. I think direct to consumer is going to be massive uh, and data is a massive enabler for that and something that we're interested in watching keenly. But then within grocery retail, what does the new convenience look like? It's no longer a little Tesco close to your home. It's all about how do I get the groceries to your door without you even knowing that you need to order them. And data plays a real good role in that around how often you want to replenish certain items. I know that you get through this much tomato sauce in a week. Therefore, I'm just going to send you some tomato sauce when, you, when, you, when you're running low, so on and so forth. And, I, and IoT is going to enable this over time. How quickly it comes. I think the checkoutless store, everybody's working on it. Everybody's working on it. Walmart and Amazon are the ones that are pioneering it. Yeah. Um, but as soon as they nail it, the, the, so again, the, the problem you've got at the minute is the infrastructure is too expensive. Yeah. But as soon as you can nail it with either cheap cameras or if that's the route that they take or cheap sensor technology, uh, it, it's coming. And data pins it all together. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I've already got this weird, uh, this is the last point on it, because I had an argument with one of my colleagues about it, got this weird like scan as you go, and then you still go through the self-service checkout at the end. I don't yeah. get it. That's like the worst of all worlds. <laughs> but he completely disagrees, and it's the only way he shops, because he doesn't have to speak to anyone. Um, yeah. So you're getting to that weird like halfway point. All right, so I mean, back to Hyper. One of the questions I meant to ask right at the start, but we got waylaid, uh, was the name Hyper Group. Is it the hyper-personalization piece that you're looking at, or is that just me making things up? No, got it in one. <laughs> yeah, so um, I mean, the, the stuff that we do is all about improving customer experience and, um, you know, hyper synonymous with, with personalization. And, and I think an important bit there is is a lot of people, when they think about personalization, they just think about a personalized web experience. So you go on a website and the you see... Uh, content on that website based on your kind of browsing behavior typically in, in that session and there's lots of software companies out there that, that provide software that you know that enable you to uh, to achieve that but what we're uh, thinking of is the much wider um, customer experience and, and getting the right product range in front of the right customer at the right price with the right kind of marketing and customer services messages um, getting the product um, in front of the customer when they want to buy it whether that's in a store or, or, or online so it's that more holistic customer experience experience um personalization that we're really thinking about um but yeah hyper yeah is really a a link to uh, uh, the whole th um topic of personalization i'll build on that we hear a lot of retailers say we're data-driven and customer-centric but when nobody is so many of those retailers are not uh, they want to be and that's the aspiration but they're, they're not i think that's what our solutions bring a genuine customer centricity to all decision making whether it's supply range and assortment because uh, they're all relevant and, and also data driven in a simple way 
So it, within our, as Pete described, that's a simple couple of inputs, which are normally around either sales or browsing data. What, what we can do is look at customers' interactions with products and products' interactions with each other uh, and quickly look at what does a personalized range need to look like. And a personalized range can be to an individual. So that can be uh, on a website or in an email, uh, on, on your app, wherever it is. But it can also be at a store level. So based on the how customers are shopping this store, how do we personalize range for the needs of the catchment to that area? The premise is exactly the same. And what we do is we build need states around items. So working with a fashion, one of the UK's leading fashion retailers, it's around looking, what we've done is build need states to understand how what, what customers want in each of these sort of different segments, either at a customer level or a store level. And when you understand what the needs might be in a certain store catchment, so sports might be a lot bigger here, you need to increase your sports range. Whereas business uh, and sort of work, work outfits, things like that are a lot less because you're looking at what customers are wanting in those areas. And then what you can do is look at how substitutable the products are within business. Uh, and you can say, right, we've got a range of 10 suits, but five of them are totally substitutable and demand will transfer into the other ones. Reduce that to five, put more space and range into clothing. That's just a good example as to how personalization uh, and, the, and the principles of it can be applied at a store level. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think people really would think that like from a customer point of view either, you wouldn't really think that there's a lot of, a lot of thought into what's in the store for like that, that group of people because like you said it's not an individual no i like that and uh it's funny you said uh people say they're customer centric and, and data driven they're two kind of big buzzwords right in technology the one that i hate having worked in recruitment is everyone says they're like people centric now so like they're really people centric. what does that mean of course you're you you, ha- you have to be nice to your people you have to treat them properly that's, that's, that's not a sell that's like a it's a given yeah and they're probably not as well and yeah, the ones that say they are probably aren't. <laughs> so it actually brings me on nicely to the next bit anyway. So uh, obviously there was four of you. Now there's, I think, I don't know exact numbers. You're, obviously you guys will, but kind of the, there's more people on the team now. Was that inevitable when you set it up? Was it always that the four of us are going to get it set to a point, get some customers, get a kind of proof, proof concept almost, and then bring people in? Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was always the intention to grow, you know, pre- pretty quickly. So we've ended up employing a number of people in kind of data science and software engineering roles. And we tried to pick people who are comfortable talking to uh, clients as well. We think that's a, a key component. And we'll continue to do so. You know, we're recruiting again at the moment just because we've we've had a good a good twelve months, um, and it's really trying to develop in parallel that 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 product piece and and also the consulting work. We you know we see them working pretty well together. I think Brilliant. this concept of um, providing software and then just you know handing it over and walking away just doesn't work well in reality. I think having the expertise to support the implementation and then helping to drive value from uh, uh, software is really is really key. So we, you know we think um, there's a good a good strong relationship between the two and yeah we're looking to to grow in both those areas. Nice. And have you guys learned anything? Uh, this is probably equally easy to talk about from both of your previous careers as well. But um, I suppose the this hyper specific stuff has there been anything you've learned about kind of building really kind of good high performing teams um, that you will take into like the next rounds of your recruitment? Is there anything that's worked really well? 
so I've seen what I think works really badly, and I've seen this. <laughs> it's a good in, place to start. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen this firsthand in corporate businesses. Is this idea, and it's a problem that occurs when you get larger companies. Is when you try to service clients by having kind of very generic resource pools, and you have um, someone maybe leading an account. And then you have different technical people that you pull from a central pool, but those people are maybe working on three or four different client projects at the same time. So what happens is that they can't give 100% to any specific project and the client really suffers for that. I think what which what works much, much better is that if you can bring small high-performance teams together that have each of the skill sets that you need, so uh, you know, maybe a commercial person, a, you know, kind of a strategy person, business consultant, but then the right technical people as well, data science, you know, software engineering, whatever it takes to solve that particular client problem and focused on solving that problem. So you do that and then you either take that team and work on another client problem or you disband and then you reassemble a team based on the, spe- the, the people that you need again. I think that works much, much more successfully than that that kind of matrix managed, you know, generic resource pool. I think, you know, clients come off really badly when you take that approach. Um, so that's that's a big learning from my point of view. You know, Tom's nice. probably got some some things to add. Yeah, I'll give you my take. I think this is a personal take more than a that I think this is right or wrong. So what what do I think about when I'm recruiting? Uh, and I think one of the one of the key things for me is when recruiting into a team. So when I was uh, at Asda, I think the critical thing that I looked at was what's the gap in my team that I need to fill? And it's natural to always want to pick people that are like you. But yeah. generally, you need people that aren't like you to do the things that are good at the things that you're you're not good at. Um, <laughs> I tell you right now, I am not good at detail planning and admin. And I needed people that could program manage projects, manage stakeholders, pro- providing update. As I went around with all these big ideas and um, and sort of wanting to do things to make a difference, so on and so forth. So a key one there, I think, diversity. Look, look for diversity and, and often look... If you don't like someone straight away, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go with it. What Within Hyper specifically, though, what I'd say is what is critical to us, people have to be commercially focused. So within the world of uh, machine learning, AI, data science, you get some very technical people, and that's not for us. We want people that can sit and understand a commercial problem, understand business, um, and think about how data fits into that, not to go, I can build the best model in the world ever, and, and do it in that way. That's key. Communication skills critical in that. And then one of the is this this is a real like what you said before. We're we're people centric, however. I've heard <laughs> I've heard this term, and it's not probably not a very it's an annoying term, but I think it's right. Which is recruit for attitude, train for skill. I, I think there's definitely merit in well for me what I've seen in the past bringing in younger, more talented individuals that can adapt and learn rather than middle of the road, steady away, generally sort of setting their ways type people um, that kind of have got to a level where they can operate at it, but they're not willing to take that next step and push themselves and push others. So w- within that, that's just a personal take on sort of what I like to recruit. We also like sort of outgoing people that enjoy a good laugh and not don't take, take themselves too seriously. I think that's, um, as a team, we, we like to do that. Uh, the, the premise of work hard, have fun <laughs> whilst we're doing it i think is really really important because work consumes you at times it consumes me i put way too much energy and effort into it yeah. uh, and if i'm not having fun whilst i'm doing that it, there's no win so uh yeah I, I like a good element of fun in the people that i'm bringing in yeah no 100 i agree with that um especially when you're so small as well you one bad hire at a company that 
size of Hyper could like be catastrophic in comparison to, I mean, Asda's a good example, one bad hire in Asda data team, you might not notice it, but you guys will notice it straight away. We can't talk about, or we can't have a podcast in the middle of 2020 and not talk about COVID. Is it naive to think that the retail sector is actually doing quite well, so you guys will be doing all right? Not all of the retail sector, because some of them are completely screwed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, some of your clients. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a real mixture, isn't it? Um, some retailers had to stop trading um, when the uh, kind of lockdown measures came into play. So they're having a really tough time of it. And even with a slight easing of the lockdown and, you know, non-essential retail opening up in the in the next couple of weeks, um, it's not going to just snap back to normal. So, um, so, so some retailers are having a really tough time of it. Other retailers have, have fared really well. You know, if you're selling stuff that people want to consume when they're at home or used for stuff that they do at home, then, you know, the chances are you, you're going to have had a, a good few months. Like so slower. <laughs> like power. So yeah. slower, you'd be a millionaire. I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> exactly. So, so and, and our client base kind of reflect that um, spectrum. Yeah. So, so some of our clients have, have uh, kind of really made hay over the last few months and some of them have, um, you know, had a pretty tough time. So, yeah, it is, it is a, you know, certainly a, 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 an odd time for everyone, pretty challenging. Thankfully, we've had enough clients who've been busy for, you know, one reason or another that um, we've been able to uh, kind of maintain our workload through the, uh, through the last few months. And, you know, hopefully that will continue for the rest of the year. But, um, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty tough time for, for, for the retail market in general. Well, it's brilliant that you guys have done that. Um, one of the craziest things I saw about retail from all of this, it was actually near the start, but I said something about Primark having like 300 million worth of sales a week. And then as soon as lockdown happened, they now have zero because obviously they have no online presence. Yeah. And like so- someone posted it just saying, this is the best advent for any of your customers that say they don't need an e-commerce or online store. Is I just show them this headline. And I just thought it was completely insane. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously there's reasons why they don't have it, but it was just a crazy stat. I think fashion's uh, an area that's been really hit short term by COVID. And when you're in lockdown, no one cares about what you're wearing in the main. You should uh, tell my wife that. She spent a fortune. <laughs> well, there's also the boredom element. Yeah. The ran- I- I've gone more into random purchasing. <laughs> yeah, I've done <laughs> you that never too. never thought you needed. Radio control car. I mean, who doesn't need one of those? You can't drive uh, your real car, so why not? <laughs> but yeah so i think but fashion has taken a big hit we've seen that i mean i've worked in that industry so i know a lot of people that work in it and through the people that we're working with now uh, and and they're going okay they're making some very tough decisions and and coming out of covid the clear thing for them is how do they use data to be effective efficient and cut costs in yep. the short term for other retailers it's how do they capitalize on it so we work with uh, one of the home shopping retailers uh, and, and they've done really, really well because everyone's wanted outdoor. I mean, the weather's helped hugely because you had a spate of indoor needs and now you've got a spate of outdoor needs. Yeah. And when you and when you can deliver to people's houses and your operations are able to carry on in there, how do you capitalize on this? Uh, how do you build on it? And uh, it'd be interesting. I think it'd be really interesting to see consumer behavior will change a little bit, I think. There's been a shift online, and I don't think that's going to reverse totally. So there will be more of a need for the likes of Primark, as you mentioned, to think about that area. And a lot of people that previously won't really have been into buying clothes online because they were like, oh, I've got to return it. have realized that the returns process isn't that difficult, and they'll do it more. Are they going to switch back? Probably not all of it. So I think it'll be interesting to see how retailers respond to that. But it will come back to... 
simply make it easier, more cheaper and uh, faster for people to shop and they'll shop with you. It is exactly the same as you mentioned for grocery shopping. It's, it's, it rings true for fashion, retail, whatever else. And I suppose then the kind of last thing loosely related to work, Pete, you've been quite involved in the Leeds Digital Festival, right? Am I right in saying they just had like a massive online version? Yes. Yeah, we did. Um, so um, with the Digital Festival, I sit on the steering uh, committee for, for that um, for last year and, and uh, then 2020 as well. And, um, you know, last year was a massive success. I think uh, something like 250 events, 25,000 people, tons of speakers, tons of venues. Real, It's got a really nice open ethos. So most events are free. Uh, anyone can put an event on. Anyone can attend event, you know, really um, a, a kind of a, a open and um, kind of innovative uh, feel to it, citywide buzz. Um, yeah. So we, we set up the festival to go again this year. Um, the main guy is uh, Stuart Clark. He's the festival director. So I'm one of a number of people who support Stuart. And um, yeah, fairly last minute, we had to take the decision because of uh, COVID-19 to um, to cancel the physical festival and then to rapidly um, set up a, a virtual festival, I, you know, it's difficult to know what success is going to look like when you when when you do that. How many events we're likely to get? I, I don't know what the end number was, but it was something like a hundred virtual events, which which went down really well. Um, visit, you know, um, attendee numbers were very large, and the benefit of having it virtually is that people were attending from all over the world rather than just the vicinity of of kind of Leeds and the Leeds um, city region. So there's a big benefit there. Yeah, it was very well uh, received. Some 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 great events. Um, the plan is to have a physical festival later in the year. Depends on how things pan out, really, with COVID. Um, and also, it'll be interesting to see how people want to do events. So, you know, um, I, I would suspect that a number of people will do virtual events again. So, some people will want to do them in person, but I think it will be a combination. And it's 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 weird, really. You there's something like behaviour change. Sometimes you you just can't predict behaviour change. You actually have to go through a situation to see how people respond, which is you know what we've seen with COVID really. And then once lockdowns are are, are relaxed further. Again, it'll be interesting to see which behaviours stick and, and, and who goes back, um, you know, which um, kind of revert back to normal. And I don't think anyone truly knows that. So, um, yeah, similar with the with the festival, really. So um, it'll be interesting, an interesting uh, thing to look out for later in the year. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm still, I mean, I was supposed to have a, a machine learning meetup tonight in Manchester, but uh, well, obviously we cancelled it, but um still try to work out how to run it remotely and if I even want to do it. Uh, so like just trying to get it done. But I think you're right. Some people will much prefer it. So it's just trying to manage that properly. But no, it's great that that went so well. I saw loads and loads of positive um, social media stuff around it saying how well it was how well it was done and how quickly it, you guys had to react. So it's pretty amazing. Last, uh, last two points. One is work-related, one's not. Pete, your LinkedIn said you're a big football man. Yes. Who, uh, who are you supporting? <laughs> So I, I, I'm a combination. So I the worst um, combination. The wor- I am the worst <laughs> combination. So I uh, I started to go and watch Scunthorpe United with my family when I was very very young. So when they had their their old ground, the old showground in the centre of Scunthorpe, and uh, so I remember football in the bad old days in the 80s when there was loads of rioting and um, you know the football quality was was pretty pants. But I so I watched Scunthorpe for years and years, season ticket holder in their old ground, then the new ground. Then probably about 25 years ago. I just started supporting Man United. So if you kind of trace it back, you, you may notice that's just about when they were getting good. And, you know, the Ferguson era was really starting to take hold. So um, 
you know, I'm a combination of Scunthorpe United and, and Manchester United. And then Tom, you're from Liverpool, right? So I'm hoping you're an Everton fan. No, you'd be wrong about that. I'm from Leicester originally. Oh, you're from uh, Leicester. And I don't get tired of talking about uh, our title victory in 2015. Oh, good. Yeah, so Le- Leicester supporter, thick, thick and thin. Didn't look at Man United doing really, really well as I was growing up. <laughs> even though even though half of Leicester was a Liverpool and a Man United fan. Stuck with the old Filbert Street, had a season ticket for about 10 years. The only reason I stopped that was... Uh, when I went to Lancaster Uni, actually, I mean, obviously as a student, you can't afford to travel that often and, and with a season ticket cost. But um, yeah. Um, yeah, in later years, obviously family life. But uh, yeah, I've got That's a amazing. young family, a young family that I'm looking forward to take down to, to, to Leicester. The problem is we'll be rubbish again by then. So that, oh, you've, got, you've got Brendan Rodgers, he's been brilliant. Yeah, it'd be good, but I, think, I don't know, things certainly for clubs of our size, things kind of come in cycles, not normally the cycles yeah. that mean you win the league. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so when when I take take the boys, they'll go, Dad, Liverpool are just winning everything. Can I not support them? And I'll go, just because you live in Liverpool, son, you're going on a two hour drive every other Saturday to be miserable at a football ground, and you'll like it. <laughs> That's the best way to do it. <laughs> to be fair, uh, Pete's joined you on that misery recently, so don't worry about him being glory hunted <laughs> back in the day. Oh, I, should, I like Man United as well, so I can say that. We're on our way back. But should we sell Pogba? That's the question. <laughs> yes, but we can do a whole podcast on that. All right, lastly, just to wrap up, where is the best place to find you guys in terms of keeping up with all things Hyper? Um, so we're probably most active on LinkedIn. Um, so our, our company is Hyper Group on LinkedIn. Um, I post quite a lot of stuff personally as well. So just Peter Denby on, on, on LinkedIn at Hyper Group. Then we also post on Twitter and our handle is at HyperStrategy. Um, and Tom, are you kind of involved in um, some of the... Hypergroup posts, or do you do your own stuff as well? Yeah, I mean, a little bit, but generally when Pete persuades me. Uh, <laughs> we talk about having skill sets um, and, and that. So I get a lot embroiled in, in clients and solving their problems and often less so in sort of shouting about ourselves and, and, and what we can do until Pete comes knocking at my door and says, come on, Tom, come on, uh, let's get promoting something now, please. No, I, I like the mix. Uh, all right, perfect. Well, once we uh, get all this all posted, I'll make sure to tag uh, Hyper, uh, Hyper Group and all of it and, and you guys and everything like that. Uh, but thank you very much for joining and apologies for all the Wi-Fi issues. No problem. Problem, bit of pleasure. Thanks for having right. us. So that was really fun. Um, first time I've had such major Wi-Fi issues on the remote version of the podcast. So thank you to um, Pete and Tom for sticking with me. And actually also to James who edits the podcast. who now has 12 files of recordings thanks to my really shit Wi-Fi. Um, but that was a really fun uh, really fun conversation. Um, it was fun to see the two different paths, kind of technical and non-technical, um, into the world of data and how they complement each other. I think what Hyper are doing is pretty awesome. Um, and they will continue to do big things in the world of kind of um, personalizing customer journeys and, uh, and looking at retail and how they can use AI to their benefit. So yeah, definitely one to keep an eye on. So give them a follow on social media, give them a shout if you liked the episode and uh, please keep tuning in to how AI built this and we'll be back again very, very soon um, with more great guests um, and thank you to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring. Yeah, cheers guys. Bye-bye.